Thanks for downloading show 76 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being produced in partnership with Future Brand. Uh, now, the latest Future Brand Index highlighted how the most future-proofed companies consistently align the totality of the experiences they create with their wider corporate purpose. And so that's the focus of today's discussion. Organizations from the technology and healthcare sectors feature quite prominently in that report. And so I'm thrilled that we have senior representatives of two such companies to share their views on what Future Brand believe is the defining challenge for today's boardrooms and brand marketers. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith and I'd firstly like to welcome Kerry O'Callaghan, VP for Global Brand at GSK. Also, thank you Kerry for uh, hosting us today at uh, GSK's uh, London offices, so great to be here. Alongside Kerry is Jeremy Waite, Chief Strategy Officer at IBM, and last but not least, given he's responsible for making sense of all the research that uh, went into producing the Future Brand Index, is John Tipple, Future Brand's Worldwide Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, so thank you all for uh, joining us today. Uh, let's get started as there's uh, loads to get through. John, let's uh, come to you first. Um, probably makes sense to get some background to the index before uh, we get into more detail about some of the issues and findings that uh, came out of your research. Can you give us a, a quick overview of how it's all been put together? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and I must say your introduction was pretty good. So I have to try and beat that. Um, the uh, Future Brand exists to future-proof companies. That's our, um, the reason we exist in life. And what I mean by future-proof companies is the ability to grow even when times change. And in order, about five years ago, we put the Future Brand Index together as a way of exploring that idea and looking at whether we could um, create some sort of insight into what it is that drives some of the more successful, some of the larger brands in the world, the ones that are most resilient. And do they have something, a special DNA or something, or an ability, a, a, a way of working that could not just give further insight to the industry, but could actually be something that could be applied to any brand of any size anywhere in the world? And um, in order to do that, um, we worked with uh, PwC, um, with their global top 100 companies by um, market capitalization. And we um, built a, a global sample of informed, uh, an informed global public. Um, so not hardcore influencers, but neither were they people from the, you know, just that you bumped into in the street. Um, they had certain job titles, certain salary incomes, and all the rest of it. And what we asked them to do was rank the PwC list by 18 brand attributes, um, broad, a broad range of um, brand attributes that many, many of us in, uh, listening to this and, and in, in this room will be familiar with. Things like thought leadership, innovation, um, uh, personality, story, trust. Um, and, you know, some of the more, I think, pressing concerns that a lot of consumers have these days around things like sustainability, waste management, quality of people. Um, and the, the way employees are treated and that sort of thing. Perception studies. So what we ended up with is a, uh, a perception strength score allied to a financial strength score. It isn't, it, I would repeat, it's not a valuation um, yeah. study per se. It's, it's an ability to understand, is there something that goes on that makes some brands future-proof and some brands not? Are some brands better at managing um, the way the world changes over others? And what we found, uh, the big finding over, over the five-year period, what's really emerging is that actually there is something that um, the most future-proof brands share, regardless of where they're from in the world, regardless of whether they're old or new, uh, new era brands or, 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 or older, and regardless of whether they, um, where they come from or what sector they're in. And that is this ability to really build a connection between why you exist and the experiences you create for people every day. And when I say people, I mean people who interact with the brand. It could be an employee, 
an analyst as much as it could be a consumer or a customer. So it looks at the entire ecosystem of that brand. And what comes out is, 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 is this really simple concept, I think, which, which does form a, a real agenda for marketing these days, which is you know, to practice what you preach. If you say you stand for something, then you need to deliver that in everything that you do, in the way everyone is treated, in the way you um, p present yourself to the world, in the way you treat people in it. And, and this year is, 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 is another testament to that. There are some stalwart brands that you see time and again delivering despite times changing, the Apples, the Microsofts, um, the, the Intels of this world, Toyota. And there's also some you know, brands that pop in and pop out. At the moment, we see really interesting brands like um, uh, you know, the most biggest brand that nobody has ever heard of, it seems, which is, I'm going to try and pronounce, Kuei Chao Mao Tai. Very good. Which is the unheard of biggest spirits brand in the world. Right. Um, which is doing a fantastic job right now of, of standing for something and giving people experiences around that that absolutely deliver on what it stands for. And yeah. lo and behold, our informed global audience are very excited about it right now. Whether they can sustain it in the way that some of the brands I just mentioned can sustain it over years is, is, is to be seen. Yeah. But I think what's really key is that this is something that every brand can get their head around, this simple idea of, of, of practicing what you preach. It's, of course, much harder to do in real life. Well, you were getting some, some nods from the other side of the table uh, there it's on, on some of the stuff. Yeah, abso absolutely, from our, our brand representatives. And I, I want to get their opinions, um, you know, in a second on, on the report as, as a whole, um, you know, before we dig deeper in, into the, uh, the key topic areas of those findings. Uh, Jeremy, I, I want to come to you first. I know you can be pretty cynical about lists and indexes. Um, but, you know, John's just talked through there. This is backed by, you know, some pretty thorough research. And I'm guessing there's a lot that you can you know, take out of that in terms of the value um, about what's been said about your brand, but also the, you know, the industry as a whole. Um, I think so. I think so. Uh, thanks for inviting me as well. This, this is going to be a joy. I can tell we're going to have no... <laughs> we're gonna, I can see the, you getting warmed up. The, the time is the thing I'm already looking at. This could go long, yeah. couldn't it? Um, but no, I think John stole my thunder already. Um, he said this, this isn't about a brand valuation study. Um, what this could quite, this is why this is such a good conversation as well. What this could quite easily descend into is a discussion around brand valuation. And then we get into the weeds talking about why all these brand valuation agencies that are running all over the place can't even agree on the value of the world's biggest brand to within $160 billion, right? But I think what you're saying is it's completely missing the point because what it does is it drives a conversation. That's why this is such a good podcast. Um, what I like about our titles, we both have the same title. I mean, you're chief strategy officer, but essentially, we're just storytellers, right? We're just here to tell stories, and, and what's the value of those stories, and what do they mean? So it's the old cliche, isn't it, of, um, you know, what you stand for is more important than what you sell. Mm. We could all get very Simon Sinek straight away, very quickly, <laughs> couldn't we? You know, the goal isn't um, to sell to people who need what you have, it's to work with people who believe what you believe. When I think back to the beginning of my career, I started off at Facebook valuing audiences, so if you've got 20 million fans, you know, what are they worth? And trying to put economic value and all that sort of stuff. And it becomes very transactional, but it's completely missing the point as well, because I think no matter what our job titles are, even though today we're talking about brand comms, um, we're all storytellers. Whatever business unit you're in, whether you're operations, finance, logistics, ops, it doesn't matter. We're all storytellers. Mm. And our jobs are to represent the brands that we work for and explain the vision and the mission and the values and stuff that we have. Um, the challenge that we have is how do you tell those stories fast and as compellingly as possible, remembering that the audience is the most important part of those stories. So originally when we were having this conversation, I was like, right, I'm going to look into the methodology of future brands. We're going to look at really, we can pick it to bits. What, seriously, it's only 3,000 people in like 17 countries representing the entire world. 
How can that be credible? And it's that's completely missing the mm. point, I think, because what this is doing is it's driving a conversation about brand and purpose. Absolutely. And when I think about what that brands essentially are just collections of stories, and to quote Brené Brown, a story, you know, is really just data with a soul. And I work with a lot of data scientists, and they talk about these things like the four Vs. They talk about volume, velocity, variety, and veracity. Volume, how much is there? Velocity, how fast is it going? Variety, how many different types of data are there? But more importantly, veracity, which essentially means, is it accurate? And the thing that I find really curious in the middle of all of that is that they don't talk about a fifth V, which really should be value. What's it worth? And I think that's why this is a really great discussion about what is it worth to have some type of a purpose? What does that mean on culture? Can you put a figure on it? And then it descends into, or doesn't descend, maybe ascends into, well, just because you can measure it doesn't mean that you should. Yeah, I, I, just to come back on you, I, th I think that that is exactly what we're trying to demonstrate. It's not about valuation. And it's, it, what really is at the heart of this is, is partly its purpose, and there's lots of you know, noise around purpose right now, mm. but, and, and partly it's about the delivery of experiences and interactions every day that link to that purpose. But the, the real key to growth is to what extent you create the connection between purpose and experience, and what we call a, a connected brand experience. So if I, will, if I look at our, our list, I say those top 20 brands are creating a really connected brand experience, because what people are saying is, I know what that company stands for, and, I, and I, it feels relevant and meaningful to me, and do you know what? When I interact with that brand, in whatever guise I happen to interact with it, and they are corporate brands, so it could easily be as an employee of GSK mm -hmm. as much as it could be a customer of medicine or va vaccine order, or a, or a consumer healthcare product, but what they're saying is, is that my interactions with the brand live up to and are connected with what it says it stands for. And I think that's the key to growth. And, you know, I've talked in the past about being thrown out of the marketing magic circle by making it too simple, by going, look, if you want to grow, stand for something that people care about and do stuff that is in line with it. And I think that's the really simple formula. Like all things, the, the principle is really simple. The, the challenges come when you try to do that at a global scale, in a, in a companies that employ people who have their own agendas and all the rest of it. Yeah. And also when you rely heavily on traditional channels or purely communication, you're not thinking about the totality of how a brand communicates, you know, through the places it, it, it creates, through the policies it has, through the principles it embraces in, in terms of design or whatever it happens to be. All of those little moments to communicate what you stand for. And I think that's the, that's the new news, really, because purpose has been around for a long time and execution experience and touch point delivery has been around for a long time. But the connection of the two is something that I think not many companies are really getting right. It's, you know, and the, but the ones that are, are a real sort of, you know, in, instruction for, for everyone else. Sure. Kerry, let's bring you in yeah, on the sure. discussion. Well, um, good morning. Um, so I think totally agree with the, the comments that have been made. I think... What's quite challenging within the pharma sector is that get all that stuff, but actually in, an, in a sector where you don't always have direct contact with your end user, it can then complicate that connectivity. Um, so I think now when we're going to get onto more about social media and that direct connection, but to date in the past, I think pharma companies have not been good at trying to establish what they stand for because it's sort of obvious, isn't it? We're all here to make medicines to help people. Well, it, we are, but actually, how do you differentiate from that? How do you communicate that to an audience that, in many cases, you don't have that direct connectivity? 
and also the variation across the world. So we've um, started to look at our own study now uh, as well from a reputational point of view, uh, latterly, which is fantastic. It's now a KPI um, on one of our 10 global KPIs as a company, which is a real step change. Um, over the last year um, and is now monitored by the board. But we see there very clearly that in India and China, the value of the GSK brand means something there because it is a sign of quality, efficacy, uh, that is because you get that direct connection. Um, and then when you move into the US, there are obviously chat differences in terms of how the whole insurance system works and obviously the UK of NHS. So there's different levels of connectivity, but also how healthcare is perceived. So the difference between the role of government versus private industry in those uh, countries as well. So I think the complexity is made more so because you can have a global view as to what you might stand for and a global view of how you want to deliver that experience. But then you also have to be very aware of that local nuance as well Absolutely. because it has to be relevant, as you said. It has to be authentic. Otherwise, it just gets blown out of the water. So I think um, it, it, it's... But what I'm personally pleased about that... Yeah, from a GSK pharma company point of view, we're here at the table. So we're here sitting with you know, colleagues from IVM, which is a fantastic place, which I'm not sure a few years ago we would have been. So I think as a sector, we're sort of playing catch up a bit as well. Um, and certainly for GSK, it's a really big focus for where we're heading. And I think it speaks to um, an issue that we have in a lot of boardrooms as well, because there's been a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety in the boardroom. There's a lot of trepidation about the future. Some of the research that we're looking at at the moment shows four out of five executives are overwhelmed and underprepared for the challenges their business is going to face over the next five years. Like, people are terrified. They don't know technology. They're looking at where the brands are going to go. They're looking to guys like you, John. You're like, what consumer behavior? How is that going to change and stuff? And because of that fear, the amount of times, if I have a pound for every time someone said, oh, and what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the question that we've got to drive around the boardroom table. Instead of really what we're doing today is, well, what about what gets you out of bed in the morning? Surely that's a much better question. You know, yeah. you talked about culturally. Yeah. Like what, and that's going to change country by country and business unit by business unit. What gets me out of bed? What's my why? Why do I work for this company? Why does this company exist? Why do my customers care? You know, and then how we communicate that, whether that's you know, tangibly or not. You know, uh, preach the gospel at all times if necessary, use words, right? Um, I think that's the key. But we should be talking more about what gets us out of bed and less about, you know, what keeps us up at night. Well, let, let, let's, let's go, um, you know, dig, dig deeper into some of these findings. So, as I said at the top of the show, technology and healthcare brands pretty dominant in the index. Um, it could be one of the aspects of how, you know, is, is down to how well they, they, they rank is whether those organisations are changing our lives for the better, which in, in both instances there is, of course, a strong argument for. At the same time, you, you know, that, you can imagine that comes with some negativity around things like data and trust. So, for example, almost every technology company has fallen in the, in the index. It would be good to get your views on, on that, um, Jeremy, in a second. Um, but um, half of those companies perceived as companies of the future are technology companies. Um, and then on the flip side, the report says that healthcare companies today are perceived to be doing what tech companies once did, in other words, innovating for good. So, John, I want to ask you this one. What is it that healthcare is doing that tech isn't? Or actually, is it you know, more about what is healthcare doing better? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the major drivers of the, of the index um, this year, and it's been growing over the years, is the perception that you are changing people's lives for the better. So this, this broad well-being uh, perception, obviously well-being is, is very nuanced. Um, and what we have uh, seen is that that core driver is something that is, more, is, at the moment, more associated with healthcare companies. 
um, because they are making technology meaningful to people's lives in a way that is, um, it feels relevant and, and, and exciting. And, you know, sometimes um, even some healthcare brands are more associated with things like pleasure these days, which is something you wouldn't usually associate with healthcare brands. And, you know, some of the American healthcare brands like AbbVie and Gilead have been in our top 10 or top 20 for five years. I mean, this, these are brands that are over and over are able to deliver on what they say they stand for and create experiences that are meaningful to people and are valued. Um, when you look at technology, um, I think technology is one of those really difficult words because it's such a broad, it's such a broad um, space and really we're using the definitions, the category definitions that PwC um, have defined. And in some ways, a lot of healthcare companies are behaving almost like technology companies when you look at the you know, explosion of devices and, and, and the technology and science that goes into pharmaceuticals. But I think characterizing technology companies as, as for, for the sake of this conversation as new era technology and some of the more established companies like IBM who've been through it. And, 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 and IBM's interesting because IBM's one of those, like Microsoft, like Intel, who have been around for some time They've got experience, they've got miles on the clock, and they've been through ups and downs, and, and they know, in some respects, they are um, slightly more um, established and, and understood. When, when we look at the new era companies, the Facebooks, the Amazons, et cetera, I would kind of characterize people's response to those as, as kind of a confidence crisis, and, and in many ways, they are struggling to grow up. They are, they have a, they are like, um, Adult, uh, teenagers struggling with some of the is adult issues. They are they need to pay taxes like adults pay taxes, and they haven't quite got their head around that. They have need to take care of their family, their users, in a way that perhaps they have been slightly uh, disregarding of in terms of privacy. I'm not saying there's a causal link necessarily between how these brands currently are behaving, uh, performing today on our index versus what they're doing in the world. But I certainly see that some technology companies are struggling to grow up in a way that healthcare companies have, and healthcare companies are being given the credit like I said, for changing people's lives for the better, as opposed to just changing people's lives for I'm not sure if it's for good or bad. And I think that's fundamentally the big difference right now between the emerging famous new era tech brands like Facebook and, and what have you, and some of the more established healthcare brands. Okay, Kerry? Um, yeah, interesting. Um, when this came up as a conversation piece, it was like, is it healthcare versus tech? Mm. And I think I was quite adamant and went, no, no, no. It's healthcare plus tech. Mm. I mean, we feel very passionately at GSK. Uh, we've just got a new head of R&D in Hal Barron. Hal comes from Calico, which was actually you know, created and funded by Google. So mm. we've deliberately, Emma Walmsdale, CEO and the board, have deliberately brought in a person who is going to really shake up how we work in R&D and put innovation at the centre of that conversation. So we have a new strategy, uh, which is the multiplying effect of science times uh, technology times mm. culture. That is the sort of the way that we're going to see success in our future R&D. So I think that is, and, and, and a key proof point of that was our recent um, collaboration, so four-year collaboration with 23andMe. So the opportunity there to really access the 5 million uh, customer base that they have to look at ways that we can really interrogate that genetic material to find the cures for the future. Um, I, part of my role is overseeing the STEM um, recruitment and um, inspiration that we provide as the company. Um, previously, five years ago, it was very much about biology, physiologists, chemists. We need those still. But also now the good big lookout is for computational scientists. Mm -hmm. So that you know it, it's all of it, it's we need everybody now. We need we need that real range of STEM operation. Um, so I think that role that technology and innovation plays in healthcare is evident not just in how it interfaces with the consumer, so some of the diagnostic pieces, but 
it is fundamental to the way that we are changing the way that we will actually discover new medicines and vaccines who in the future. Who you employ and, you know, and, and who we employ. Yeah, mm. so, yeah. Really interesting. That cross-fertilisation of, of capability is really interesting. It's yeah. completely welded together, yeah. Jeremy. I love what you said there, Kerry, about um, healthcare plus technology and not versus. There's, um, there's a line that just springs to mind that Gary Kasparov said not long ago, and he said the best combination is a good human and a machine. <laughs> and he was talking back to when we beat him in 97. You remember Deep Blue? Yeah. And there was this great big thing about this is the tipping point of intelligent machines. And, um, and he, he joked that IBM destroyed his life. Because <laughs> right? he's the unbeaten grandmaster, right, yeah. at the time, the best chess player in the world. Um, and he said, no, this is the moment that the machines are going to become much better. And actually what's happened is the opposite, almost. Um, machines have certainly got more intelligent. I mean, he jokes back then that the machine that beat him was really just a $10 million alarm clock. But if you look at the way that chess would work today, you know, we've just had the chess championships um, just in London. You could get two amateur chess players with two amateur PCs, just very, very basic spec. And combined, they could be any grandmaster anywhere. So this idea of good humans working with machines is perfect. This is the sort of conversation we should be having. So when you think about, well, what's the perception then of brands that have lots of good humans inside working with lots of good technology and either using that technology for good? Um, I think it's a really, really interesting discussion, but back to your point about the... the not, I don't want to say the rankings because it doesn't feel like a rankings. But You'll notice I haven't bragged about gone on about who's top or who's bottom. It's, it's just, it's just a I moment love, in time. You I know? love that you've not done that, though, because perception's the key word, right? Perception. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lovely line Seth Godin used to say. It's my get-out-of-jail-free at conferences all the time. And he said, if you wait until there's a case study in your industry, you waited too long. <laughs> now, half of the issue, now, and I say that flippantly, but half of the issue is that we can't talk about much of what we do, right? You know, I work for a 107-year-old startup. You know, we've got 6,000 people in our research team. We don't actually spend that much on marketing proportionally, but yet we spend 7 to 8% on research, you know, and just under $8 billion a year we put into research. We registered just over 9,000 patents last year. Um, and for like 25 years on a trot, we've registered more patents than any other company on the face of the earth, right? And most of that has gone into healthcare, but the big chunk of that has been cloud, quantum, AI security. Um, so when you look at the perception on the street, to look at a consumer brand, when you're asking 3,000 people, what do you think about Disney? Well, they're going to get a very visceral response. But when you say IBM, they're going to be thinking sometimes of mainframes. What does that mean? Computers? Does that mean something from the 60s? Is it hidden figures, a movie that they've seen or whatever? Because most of what we've invented isn't public yet. So the biggest issue is maturity. Mm. And of something like AI, which is driving a huge transformation for us at the moment, most of the most innovative brands in the world using our infrastructure, obviously they can't talk about it because there's some really cutting edge stuff. And there was a really interesting stat I heard from Frank Chen, who um, is one of the innovation guys that heads up Andreessen Horowitz in Silicon Valley. And he was looking at earnings calls. So when, you, you know, when the companies come out, they do their earnings call, they talk through the figures and kind of roadmap for the future and stuff. And in 2014, not one company mentioned AI, artificial intelligence. This year, 300 of the top 500 companies in the world all said AI is key to our strategy. But yet most of them won't talk about it. Or know what it is. Or know what it is, <laughs> which is why we've got to educate them, right? But it's, but it's the same thing. Perceptions, what do people know? They don't know what they don't know. I, th I think what I, what's really interesting about what Jeremy just said is, is this idea of um, artificial intelligence versus human consciousness. And I think what's interesting is while artificial intelligence has grown massively over time, 
um, artificial consciousness has not grown at all. So I think humans being able to bring the conscious, the conscious side of it is really key. And the balance of technology plus humanity is, is essential. The other thing is, is that I, I, I sometimes find as a brand person, not as a tech person or a healthcare person, is that there's a kind of established way of behaving that all these brands tend to follow and it tends to be announcement based or technology breakthrough based, which is a key part of the story. But I'm also interested to understand who works at IBM, who works at GSK, what are their passions, what's the environment like that they work in, what do they do? I mean, one of the stories we were talking about off air was this, that at, at GSK, if you drive a smart car, you seem to get preferential parking. I think there's something really smart, but I mean, that says more about the company, perhaps, to, to a lot of people than, than the latest announcement about something I don't quite understand what it is. And I think that being able to think about the totality of the experiences that you're able, or, 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 uh, or interactions you're able to create, as opposed to just the same kind of announcement-based, white paper-based, keynote-based, you know, earnings call-based conversations mm -hmm. that corporate brands operate in, I think could, could you know, really broaden out the relevance um, of, of companies that obviously have to compete on that, that ground, but open up new fronts in other ways. Um yeah, I completely agree, and it's interesting. One of the, I think we might be moving on as well. Looking at one of the criticisms that we had at GSK, a bit like IBM in a way. You know, well, you can't even buy a GSK. You can sort of buy a bit of IBM sometimes if you're going to buy an IBM, you know, computer or something. But actually, maybe you can't. But GSK, you can't buy. So GSK was seen as a very faceless organisation, and that was really what prompted us to really reevaluate from a reputational point of view. What are we doing? And we weren't really doing anything consciously. It was all a sort of people just doing stuff without really a, a concerted strategic effort. And I think that, so what we've been trying to do, and I think what came through the research, and it ties up to what you said, Jeremy, as well, is people can't know about stuff they don't, you haven't told them. So actually what we found quite encouragingly for us is that whilst people didn't know much about the GSK story, when we did tell them, they really liked it. So actually our issue was not about changing who we are as a company or changing what we did, but actually making sure that enough people were hearing the message. And that is a really significant, again, sounds simple, most of these things do, but actually once you get that, then you realize that actually the job you're trying to do is to increase the reach of that story into the, and that can be internally and externally. Don't assume that your internal 100,000 people know what you're doing. Internally as well as externally, and I also really liked your comment on about, like I'm sure in, the, in your sector in IBM, there's lots of high-tech stuff that comes out. We have lots of really smart press releases that come out which are amazing and which drive our uh, business forward. But actually, for, from a more informed public, from a, a, you know, even a broader employee base, sometimes it's those things that are, they're not always accessible to everybody. And so what are those things that make a difference? And um, maybe I've got a couple of examples later on that mm -hmm. might show some of that, that you actually, um, some of the more simple but really symbolic things are maybe what we should dial up the comms ladder um, rather than assuming that that's a given and everyone gets it, because um, I think uh, that is a big assumption. Absolutely, and particularly if you're looking at the totality of your brand as, you know, your you know, an yeah. employer brand. You want to attract the, the, the best graduates in, as opposed to where they might go to the more yeah, yeah. fashionable or, 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 you know, Googles and Facebooks of this world. Why can't you compete with that? You know, bringing out that side of the brand is really important. And, and I couldn't agree more about this idea that a brand is as much about your internal... It, it, brands come from the inside. You know, if you've got a good company, take the inside outside and you've got a good story. And there's lots of different ways to do that. And um, I think it's absolutely, I couldn't agree more about the in, inside of the company. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, I just want to pick up on, on, on one thing. You, you talked about IBM being a 107 year old startup or, or how, whatever the, 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 the number was. How, do you, how does it feel when 
John's talking about new tech and old tech. Where do you, which one of those do you sit in? Because you're 100, over 100 years old, but you describe yourself as a startup. So I think it's a new era. Oh, new era, sorry, <laughs> new era. I think we are a startup, and to work inside IBM, you'd see very quickly um, the chaos as well. Um, you know, you would think that you would have technology problems, and we actually don't really. You know, we're inventing a lot of cool stuff, but we've got people problems. Um, we don't have technology problems at all. I mean, I'm a big believer that we ask too much of technology and not enough of ourselves. Um, this is why I just, I, honestly, I'm sat back here listening to you guys and just like violently agreeing at everything that you're saying. And we're supposed, are we supposed Damn. to be, <laughs> Russ, is this supposed to be we're going at it with these well. different... No, because I'll, I'll tell you what, let me tell you a really brief little story. Um, because, you know, we are a 107-year-old startup. We've got 380,000 employees. Um, and for a few weeks of the year, I work at Wimbledon. And, um, and something very relevant to this happened last year because we talk about brands and we just think customers. And we think of consumers and what the world sees as opposed to what happens inside. And I went to Wimbledon. I've built my life on social media, right? And a, and a lot of what I've done has been based upon followings and profile and all that kind of stuff. I, so I'm assuming you're there with, when you say work at Wimbledon with IBM, not with IBM, board, yeah, not as a board. <laughs> board yeah. Thanks for <laughs> clarifying that. No, really appreciate it. Although I did have my umpire shirt on, <laughs> and um, and I went in and I spoke to the guy that's leading the Wimbledon practice from our side, and I went in with all the stats first as well to make sure I've got a good data-based, you know, argument. Because I'm looking at all the work that we're doing to share our comms, all the stories of everything we're doing with our technology and security and all this kind of stuff. And I'm looking at the reach of all these stories because this is a massive project for us. And it just looked like an echo chamber of IBMers. And I'm looking at all the hashtags and what makes great and I'm measuring everything. I'm using all our social media tools, all the intelligence. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I've got this flawless argument about 90% of the conversation is IBMers. So I'm going to speak to our guy in the client center. And I'm, and I'm like, Sam, this is what's going on. I think it's really wrong. I think you should know about it. You should understand because our brand value. He says, Jazz, you're such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't understand. I can say that. You can say that. <laughs> and he, he said, I, I, don't, I said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, that's not what this is for at all. He said, this isn't to try and reach all of these millions of people all over the place about Wimbledon. This is my audience is either IBMers. And I didn't know what he meant until about three weeks later on. And it was only when it properly soaked in and I looked at my role as CSO which is lots of people inside the company don't know what we do and the truly life-changing work that we do. And my job is to tell the stories. Mm -hmm. And I realized straight away, last year, I realized, you know what, that's my purpose at mm -hmm. IBM. My audience isn't the millions of people to try mm -hmm. and go and impact the industry. My audience is the 380,000 IBMers. Mm -hmm. So if I can inspire them to do what inspires Knock on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe we're going off no, carry, here, go for Russell, it. but um, I think I'm violent agreement again. Um, we, uh, the recent uh, study that Edelman did, you know, employees are most trusted source of information that we have uh, for any company. Um, we have in GSK, 88% of our employees are proud to work for GSK. Fantastic. And yet we have this sort of perception that we're sort of this faceless company outside. So, again, how does that all work? What we certainly uh, have seen and are sort of marshalling more formally, I suppose, is how we can really leverage that employee advocacy base. How do we develop those employee ambassadors? And it's a real sort of self-fulfilling purpose. We did um, drug testing at London 2012, which was a, a great thing to do. It was a great thing to do reputationally, but actually internally, the pride that that mm. developed of actually um, people from GSK seeing something external that they thought was a good thing to do, and the pride of 
my company's doing that. That really is working well. And we're running, we've run in the UK uh, for a number of years now, a, a program where on social media, on primarily Facebook, um, where we're posting 30-second uh, videos which talk about the work we do, not the products, but the principles of what we do. And the engagement levels that we get there from the informed public are fantastic, but also from our employees. They can be used internally, externally shared. And it's actually, I think, giving employees bite-sized tools, bite-sized bits of information that can make them feel good, that they can go back to their family and say, hey, guess what? Did you know this happened today? Or I learned this today. And potentially sharing that with their um, sort of networks as well. But actually that internal pride that that develops, it, well, if you don't have it, it just doesn't work because it's they're not, not authentic. You need yeah. that authentic link. Yeah. And, so. and the most sophisticated, sophisticated, excuse me, companies that are able to not just understand their culture, but help their people understand it and be able to communicate it are the ones that are operating in terms of principles as opposed to specific detail you know don't it's not just go and say this it's this is how this company behaves and that's all about your internal brand so if people understand you know your brand is, is you when you're not there yeah. you know so if people know what you stand for if, if people have a clear set of things that feel right mm -hmm. as an employee of GSK or employee of IBM this does feel true to us or it mm -hmm. doesn't feel true to us being able to instinctively know that yeah is the difference between a brand that's really embedded yeah. and, and, is, and is living and breathing almost as its, its own self-fulfilling entity as, a brand that brand, as opposed to a brand that continually needs to be fueled and, 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 and is a little bit more robot, robotic. And I think that, that's the real opportunity to evolve a brand that's so intuitive. Mm -hmm. I remember in 2012, you mentioned London, mm -hmm. and, um, and a lot of people probably won't know this, but they probably won't know it for a specific reason when you think back to some of the spots that GSK did. And you mm -hmm. did amazing work around the anti-doping, right? But if you look at some of those spots, there was one, and I think it was called The Crowd Is My Only Drug. I am so impressed. You've made my year. Yes. <laughs> and, no, and I'll tell you why as well, because Marlon Devonish was one of my favorite athletes. And Marlon Devonish was on the spot, wasn't he? And, yeah. the, and there's this gorgeous clip of the arena, and they've got all these beautiful graphics and his tech and data flying everywhere. And just they were talking essentially about the dopamine and the serotonin and, and all the endorphins, and sort of endorphins you can imagine as an athlete. That painted a picture of the values that you've got. Now, most people from the outside looking in might go, yeah, that's okay, that's interesting, that's nice, a nice bit of corporate comms. But I suspect that a lot of people inside GSK looked at that and went, I work for that company. That's some pretty cool work. Y yes, and um, thank you for the... Uh, I'm very impressed. Um, yeah, I mean, still remember we, have, we aired the ads here in the big... The, for those of you who cannot see where I am, this is irrelevant. We have a very big street uh, at GSK, uh, a big atrium, and we had lots of subwoofers going on, and we had the screen there. And that was the first TV advert that GSK had done from a corporate point of view. So it was hugely significant. Um, and I actually remember... Um, we then thought, oh, should we do some outdoor? But we didn't do outdoor in Piccadilly Circus. We actually did outdoor at every site around the country. So we've got about 20 sort of different sites around the UK. So the six-sheet bus shelter posters that you'll find at, the, uh, every, at Stevenage, at Ware, at Ulverston, at Barnard Castle, they all had the poster advertising because we were connected in with a few other ad, um, athletes as well. Very deliberately targeted at when people were arriving and coming back from home as well. So yes, there was that external view of the, the broader public, but actually very deliberately wanting to replay that onto employees it's as a really well. It's a powerful story. I mean, as a, we, we were the marketing services provider of London 2012. And what was interesting about that was the ability to create a story that people were really excited about and, and it became 
people fueled it. So when you, and 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 to, you, to your point at the start, Jeremy, about we're all just storytellers. So when you start think, remembering back to things like Inspire a Generation, Games Makers, all those things, they were simple concepts that everyone could understand and interpret what a games maker was sort of on their own. In, in, you know, what, it, what does it mean to you in your local environment? And, and, and then the communications with partner brands like GSK and, and, and what have you just reinforced that story. So it just became a sort of a self-fulfilling you know, prophecy, a self-fueling brand, if you like. And it's back to that Sonet quote as well that you opened with about putting an economic value on stuff. The mm. goal in business isn't to sell to people who need what you have. Yeah, it's to work with yeah, people who absolutely. believe what you believe. Mm. Okay, um, Jeremy, I want to ask about uh, perception in terms of innovation. So one of your key roles is evangelizing for IBM's Watson. Um, there was an interesting thing you mentioned in an episode of your own podcast, your, your 10 Words podcast, which you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of. Um, so this was the Tarantino episode uh, where you talked about Samsung's global CMO, YHLE, commenting in a Marketing Week interview um, about the fact that her background is in consumer goods and that she admits that she is not at all technology, uh, technologically savvy, but in fact um, that's helped her to differentiate herself to talk and behave as a consumer. So she goes on to say that she appreciates that uh, she doesn't get, um, if she doesn't get something then her customers won't either and in, actually in that Marketing Week article um, she says that she takes all the difficult technology that Samsung has, uh, Samsung has developed and interprets it for everyone using very basic um, consumer language. In fact in, in that podcast, you talk about her um, just wanting to understand people and see things from a customer's perspective, um, just like a consumer would. Um, and and in, in it, it talks about um, that's going to help her think differently from everyone else in her team, and that by having a different vision will make her a brilliant CMO, putting her in the uh, customer's shoes. W where I'm leading on all this is how important is this perception of being innovative in contributing to brand value? Long, long That's question. Quite a long preamble <laughs> that, that, there. That is actually probably the longest question I've ever asked. There's but <laughs> go on, you go. Sixteen points to aim at there. So yeah, this suddenly becomes all four-hour Tim Ferriss territory, doesn't it? But let's go just for extend it. this. Um, let, let me start with. Um, there, there's a quote that people throw around when they talk about disruption and innovation, and and Apple has completely ripped their off themselves. There's a lot of people inside that talk. Oh, people don't know what you want until you show them, right? And there's a lot of that, and people kind of refer that back to innovation. Of you've, you've got to invent new things that people just don't know. And then often what they'll say is, they'll talk about Henry Ford, right? If I asked people what they want, they'd say, faster horses, faster horses yeah. right? There's no proof that he ever said that, ever. Like, Henry Ford never, ever said that. If you actually look at what he really said, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, if you put yourself in the customer's shoes and see things from their perspective, therein lies the secret for success, right? Now, his PR team... <laughs> who spun it very well, <laughs> created a gorgeous headline, which is now, you know, gone into folklore 100 years Some later. Some branding company. Did a fantastic <laughs> job. Well, you weren't invented, but I'm sure you would have done it. <laughs> My great-great-grandfather. <laughs> and the thing is, so you look at innovation and disruption, and you're looking back to things like that about, well, what about, this isn't going out and charting new territory, you know, because often whoever did it first, you know, isn't the most successful. Kevin Kelly says there's no business case for innovation. It's best to perfect what you know. I mean, he's the founder of Wired magazine. His job is to talk about innovation and new shiny things and get people excited about all of that. But perfect what you know, I think, is really the key. And the nuance that we should be careful with when we talk about innovation is there's two ways of looking at this. And, it, and the words that are almost used interchangeably when you think about innovation, you think about disruption. And brands like IBM, GSK, mm -hmm. very much you would say, oh, that's an in innovative brand. And then some people would say maybe Watson is disruptive, but like, what's the difference? The way that I see it, innovation is just really doing the same thing as everybody else, but faster. Mm -hmm. You know, survival of the fastest. 
Disruption is when you do a new thing that makes the old thing completely obsolete. Now, the challenge you have in the middle of that, referring back to the CMO story, is, well, what about CMOs that this is the way we've always done it, therefore we approach brand comms in the same way, we approach brand building and share a voice, well, you can't because it doesn't work anymore. Social media doesn't work anymore. 90% of social media interactions for most consumers are now on private messaging apps. You know, Gartner suggests that 75 of the top 100 brands are gonna lose a fifth of their brand equity by 2020, you know, which is terrifying. So in the middle of that, we talk about brand anxiety and the stress of a CMO. You look at what Harvard's doing with the research of CMOs and they're finding out that 80% in some cases of CEOs no longer trust their CMOs at all. 80% of CEOs don't trust their CMOs because they've invested in shiny things, they're acting as a bit business as usual, they're not disrupting themselves. Now, I'm not sure that I agree with that completely, but there's definitely a case for traditional marketers acting like they've got to do things faster versus Samsung, who are like, no, let's bring in a completely different person that's going to look at things from the customer's perspective and it's going to help us create new business models or new products that are going to make the old ones obsolete. John? I mean, I, I, I would agree with that, but it sounds bloody tiring. If, if you're a CMO or CEO, to have to disrupt things all the time just sounds like a lot of work and a lot of risk. And um, instinctively, you believe it, but I kind of, what, what we tend to think about when it comes to innovation is what's really at stake here is stop being banal. And we live in a world now where um, efficiency and systems have been so highly tuned that every car looks the same, every yogurt pot looks the same. Um, things have been smoothed out to within an inch of their life. And I think what people are crying out for is to be stimulated again. And is, if that's disruptive, it's disruptive. But if I'm making a, a, a drink or a dairy product, I want to think about not just what does it taste like and how much does it cost, it's how am I going to stimulate every sense? How am I going to make this a really immersive, non-banal experience? The, the, the company I always point to as one of those great innovative companies is Ferrero, where none of their products look, look as banal as a, as, a, as a bar, as a chocolate bar. Everything stimulates your brain, your, your, you play with their, their, their toys, they don't open in the same way, they don't taste the same, they cost more. What, the cost of gluing the doily onto the Ferrero Rocher, put that in the hands of a, a production, a, a modern day factory maker, that'll be, that'll be straight off as a complete waste of time. And I, and I think, Factory produces, anyone that's produced something or made a product or a, typically now a service, they've had the same brief for 30 years. Make it faster, make it cheaper, make it quicker. And what have we got? We've got a load of products that are very hard to differentiate and lo and behold, CMOs are not trusted by their CEOs because they're being served up products and, and that, that don't, aren't that exciting anymore. The brands that are exciting these days are brands that are <clears throat> spending a little bit more money, putting, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and making products that are not banal, that are really stimulating for people, and people are prepared to pay more for them. And so all that given, I suppose the other piece within the puzzle is um, the employee culture that facilitates that innovative thinking. Because I think uh, we, you can't be innovative on the outside unless you're innovative inside in that way of working. And certainly, again, with GSK recently, a big focus on sort of the, the culture of the company and also how a bit, that's a physical restructure in certain areas and certainly a mindset shift to be much more uh, innovative, much more um, 
it's okay to make mistakes, uh, making sure accountability, decision making, all that much, which in a smaller company, maybe you have from the start when you, you know, you've got a large company, over 100,000 people in um, over 150 countries, the complexity and, and, and quite different skill sets as an organization as well. We have quite a diverse skill set base, as you can imagine, from the, um, the scientists, the manufacturing site through to all the commercial mm -hmm. operations. Um, so I think what we're trying to do there is actually inject that innovative way of thinking into sort of the everyday way of working. So this might not sound that innovative, but for GSK it is. So we've just introduced a Facebook Workplace as a collaborative tool in communication. That's a big deal for GSK. Opening the doors, we've got everyone from the exec down, anyone can talk to anybody, sharing ideas, collaboration. It's a brave new world. And, you know, is it all done perfectly? Probably not, but we're working through. But I think it says something about the way that we want to work together. Well, um, innovation isn't just about what you make, it's about how you well, do things. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. It's that, that thinking. And, and going back to, you know, we have now a, a work stream called Making It Easier, which is, which is sort of putting our hands up to say, okay, we haven't got all these systems right, guys. We know that, you know, internally, some of these frustrations around IT can be caused some of the biggest frustrations, which then prevents those individuals going on to develop the next best innovation thing. How can we work through that? Um, and then, you know, from a, also we've introduced sort of this concept of modern employer. So within certain areas, how can we be more flexible in the way that we are as an employer? Um, obviously, celebrating inclusion and diversity um, from a health and well-being perspective. So I think being quite innovative in the way, being a more modern employer, which will allow um, employees themselves to be more innovat mm. innovative. So it's sort of providing permission to think in different ways, to fail, to work flexibly, to just operate more or agile, I suppose is the buzzword, uh, way. So I think it's sort of unlocking a lot of things. And again, I'm not sure we're, we're perfect in every area by a long way, but I think certainly we have an intent in a way that wasn't maybe there a few years ago. But so. it says something about your approach to diversity and yep. uh, diversity of talents and ideas coming from yep. all sorts of places. And I know you, IBM, are like that as well. It's the, 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 the approach to a, a diverse um, workforce, working with a diverse you know, peer network and being able to bring the power of that to create new creative ideas. I think it's one of the big drivers of the future of businesses going forward. It's not just a, 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 um, a HR tick box exercise. It's actually a genuinely, genuine opportunity to drive business value by actually approaching, a, you know, having a culture that really embraces diversity in, in, that, in, in a way that really is meaningful. There was, um, I'm curious to know why Disney came out top. Um, <clears throat> I've got an agenda, I'll, I'll explain why in a second, but was there anything that stood out when you looked at Walt Disney as an organization and why it is that they beat everybody else. We should, should point out top of the, the index, obviously, that top we're talking about. Yeah, top of the future brand index, yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, as, as I said at the start, I mean, it's, it's who's top and, you know, where, where people rank is, isn't our first thing that we think about. I mean, what, what um, and it's very hard, we don't draw a causal link between what you see in the, in the index and be able to point to something they specifically did. Okay. When you look at the performance of Disney over the, the period, what you see which is common to a lot of the, you know, the businesses that are either consistently strong or are strong this year, is their ability, like I said, to, to, to stand for something that people really warm to, that is meaningful to people, and to be able to deliver that in a coherent way. So whether they're operating in um, their, their heartlands, you know, dreams, theme parks, films, or whether they're able to broaden their brand into uh, places like news um, and sports and where they're beginning to broaden their portfolio, you're beginning to be able to make Disney more meaningful to more people. And I think the reason why they have, I, I, my sense um, is that Disney have performed really, have got a really balance, really strong balance between what, what they stand for 
and what they do every day and what they deliver every day is because they've been able to really broaden their portfolio beyond what they're known for, but in a way that is coherent and meaningful to people. Okay. Um, no, that's really cool. The reason I asked is because we were talking today about how this conversation is around connected brands driving growth. Um, and my perception of Disney would be that that's the internal employee culture that they've got, which is absolutely outstanding, right? And we've had Disney in. I mean, I've purposely brought in Disney and Pixar to come and help IBM tell its own story internally. And, and the reason that they're obviously an incredible brand of storytellers, right? Every single person, no matter what they do, they all know that they're storytellers. And the thing that struck me more than anything almost the before and after Disney got involved with some of the employees within IBM, where we're trying to communicate our own stuff, right? You know, we mentioned we invent amazing things, but we don't often do a great job of telling everyone about it. Listening to people who, before they went in, were regurgitating the same, and I say that with all respect, here's what we've done, here's what we've invented, we've got six Nobel Prize winners, IBM's amazing, digital transformation, blah, blah, blah. Disney came in, helped us to kind of articulate our own personal stories and find our whys and really that reason for getting out of bed in the morning. And then afterwards, we did role-playing. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. Everyone had to find their own personal story, and they had to go on stage, and these people are not, right? <laughs> no, they're not at all well-versed in public speaking, lack of confidence a lot of the time, super nervous. Um, a really young girl that just got engaged was talking about how the reason she loves IBM so much was because of the blockchain that we helped to manage and ethical diamonds. She can source where the ad diamond came from, and she go all the way back to free. She's like, look at my ring, and obviously she's you know, super proud of just getting engaged. There was another lady that was literally in tears on the stage, just come back from Africa, literally face to face, like 10 foot away from a rhino. And it was the most profound experience of her life. She absolutely adores these creatures, and she had no idea the IoT projects that we were doing were to help saving rhinos and endangered species. So she's telling IBM stories through the eyes of this personal experience, mm -hmm. almost in tears, talking about why she loves her job. And you know, Russ, I mean, we don't need to go into any detail in this now, but I joined IBM because our technology helped to save the life of my twins in hospital. Nothing whatsoever to do with my job, but our artificial intelligence helped to save the life of my premature babies where they, like, 0% chance of survival. Now, trying to find as an employee a way to unlock that in a way that is credible and not cheesy, and it doesn't seem like it's manipulative of trying to tell too raw a story for a commercial gain, and I think that's the challenge that we've got. It's, yeah. it's driving culture internally. Yeah, I think companies that we work with that struggle with that is, is they're unable to change the context. They're unable to redefine themselves within their category. They tend to, if, you know, so the, 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 I'll give you an example from a different place. I mean, Nespresso was a, 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 a client of ours that was struggling for a long time, 20 years ago, to really make its any way in coffee because they kept trying to define themselves as a coffee maker. When they transitioned their thinking to thinking like a luxury brand that just happened to make coffee, everything followed. And if I say luxury brand that makes coffee, you can see why it sees, why it is, and why it behaves the way it is today. And I think what's interesting and what brings both your companies together is you're both in the transforming lives, making people's lives better business. You just happen to do it using different things and mm -hmm. different skills and different capabilities and different license and patents and all that stuff comes lower down. But I think the ability to pivot and tell your brand story up there is, is what a lot of companies, the companies that really fly are the ones that are able to make that human connection. And then when you have that moment, which was horrific with your twins, but presumably, but then had an amazing outcome, mm. you will confer the goodwill onto IBM because they weren't just a tech company at that point in time. They were a life-saving company that happened to be using tech to save life. You know what I mean? And it's that pivoting 
that gets people excited about working for companies and sure. staying with companies and employing companies and all the rest of it. Yeah, I got no problem standing on stage helping brands sell more stuff. Yeah. When I know that exactly the same technology with slightly different data is, just, is saving lives. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, you, you mentioned earlier about social media. I want to come on to that, that topic and the impact that's had on, on brand perception and value. Um, so particularly when it comes to brands and social issues. So for example, here in the UK, uh, for, for listeners obviously outside, outside of here, um, we've had the recent example of the food retailer Iceland's advert about the impact uh, that the production of palm oil uh, can have on the environment not being cleared for TV by Clearcast, who, uh, for those that don't know, the industry body that clear ads for broadcast on the UK's uh, main commercial channels. Um, their decision was because they said Iceland was in breach of rules banning political advertising laid down by the Communications Act 2003 as Greenpeace were involved in the project, which meant that the ad contravened the UK code because it is in collaboration with an environmental activists group. Um, now, we've also um, seen other campaigns recently, so you've had uh, things like Nike supporting the NFL player uh, Colin Kaepernick, I hope I've said, said that right, or Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Um, now, that, that, it's fair to say that one had pretty mixed uh, response because of, as well as those supporting it, you had things like hashtag um, boycott Nike and, and hashtag just burn it trending on Twitter, even um, good old President Trump weighing in on Twitter having a pop at night too. Um, you then had the, the Pepsi ad um, with Kendall Jenner um, that they had to pull because it was so badly received because um, it was seen as, as trivializing um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Kerry, how, how much of this is brands just, just not being good at sharing their purpose and, and you know and, and being misunderstood, or is it just about them jumping on the purpose bandwagon and getting it so wrong? And and so what impact can social media have when they do get it wrong? Because I, I understand about Jeremy saying that you know you can't necessarily monitor all the conversations, but social media has been huge in in these in these you know issues. Absolutely, and I think you've sort of highlighted three the three ways it can go. Yeah. Brilliantly successful. I understand now that the Iceland ad has had over thirty million views online, which and for free. So actually, they've actually come out of this pretty well, huge, uh, with huge positive surround sound. And then you've got the uh, Nike case and then into the Kendall Jenner. I think th the reason that the Iceland piece does so well is because it is authentic. It is real. You can walk into an Iceland store. They've, they've genuinely taken palm oil out of their own products. There are aisles of Iceland that are now dedicated to palm oil free. So it, it, is, it isn't a communication exercise. It is a genuine, top to bottom, throughout the business, aligned decision they have made, and that exemplifies sort of part of the, the purpose that they have. I think with the Nike piece, yes, it's related because they're in sportswear and there's sport, and he was a sportsman, and they, so there's sort of a, a piece within that, but I think it's a bit, and then you move on to Kendall Jenner, where it's completely irrelevant so I think it's that authenticity that is so key to whatever you do so whether that's on social you know and I think now on social because anybody's voice is the same weight you can't stop if you if it's something that people don't agree with they have equal weight and can garner a, a, a swelling behind them even though it might not be what you intended so you have to be really thoughtful before you go out there about thinking about well I know how we want this to land but what could the downsides be? Which way could it go? And how are we going to cope with that? Because you cannot get into a battle online in social media with a co company versus a group of individuals. Um, it, it's a bit sort of different, but similar. So we um, have one of the largest organizations uh, for um, developing and selling vaccines in the world. And um, 
Within that, when we produce a new vaccine, many, many people are very happy because that is a life-saving product. There are people in the world who um, are anti-vaccination and believe it's not a good thing to do, and that's a fair right that they have. What's interesting online is that you can get quite a swell of activity of um, anti-vaxxers, as they are known, uh, talking about the downside. We don't get involved because what you then get is a self-regulation of all these other thousands of people that come out and say, actually... You should get your kids vaccinated. My kid, I, we had one where my, you know, my child died as a result because they didn't. They were in an environment where actually they, you didn't hit that sort of critical level of vaccination. So, I think in some of this, you have to be very careful about the topics you're putting out there, and they equally be very careful about when you intervene and when you don't intervene. Um, and then just to finish, I think and I was just reading recently that I think because social media seems so conversational and immediate and you sit there and with your friends you might be sending an emoji or the kids etc when you're doing that on behalf of a company that might have several million followers or whatever you've got to be careful this is like putting this is more than putting something onto the front page of the times or whatever this is the circulation that you have and so this isn't something that should be done lightly it should be done authentically and can be quite probably locally focused. So it could be that the general manager in a different market takes on different issues. So I know another example, um, Dick's Sporting Goods in the US uh, banned guns, and I used to live in the US. Uh, and, you know, that's a big statement. That's a big statement that they're not selling guns now. And that, again, was picked up on the whole very, very positively. It's authentic to who they are. Banning guns in the UK or somewhere else doesn't make any sense because you don't have them. So you have to be authentic to the issues that are at hand in those markets. So I think it's quite difficult to set a global issue, very rarely global, um, but local, authentic, um, and something that, sounds like we're going around in circles here, the employees can believe in as well as the outside world. Jeremy. Um, I think we worry too much about social media. I honestly think we worry too much about the impact that we think it may have, and we over-dramatize sometimes reach. Um, I think of the 525 different marketing metrics there are in the world, most of them are a complete waste of time, and we can, as marketers, very easily manipulate them to mean whatever we want. And over the last few decades, that's been very clear. That's happened a lot. Um, and, it also, and I say that as a marketer as well. But I think it also speaks to the trust issue in the boardroom. Social media is a really interesting one because when you look at it, of consumer conversations at the moment, the vast majority of them don't happen on social media anymore. They used to. And I used to be in the middle of that. I used to sell these big social command centers that used to look about what's happening, how do we react. You know, I was one of the first heads of social media in Europe. But there was a quote back when I was working um, in social, so going back sort of 2011 probably, there's a guy called Wadi Kamfar, used to be the director news general at Al Jazeera. So, you know, he's facing his own fair share of issues <laughs> and crises, to be fair. And he said, CEOs used to be, what was it? He said, CEOs used to be judged by how well they acted in a crisis. Today, they're going to be judged by how well they anticipate one, right? So when you look at something like social media and you think, well, at the most, probably 5% of the conversations on Twitter. And maybe if you're lucky, 10% is on Facebook but 85% in private messaging apps. And it's going to be Snapchat, WhatsApp, WeChat, Line, Facebook Messenger, whatever else. It's going to be people sending a URL, an email to their friend. All of those conversations that brands can no longer see, and we call it dark social, it's all private. So now brands who are kind of getting beside themselves and really nervous, sometimes they're only looking at 3% of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Instead of trying to look at what, you know, across all of these different channels. So the way that I bring this all back together, looking at it from a technology point of view, 
I think the big shift is that brands used to be in control and brands are no longer in control anymore. Now consumers are in control, customers are in control. And the perfect example of that um, is this phrase of personification that we don't talk about enough. Um, Gartner talks about giving the right message to the right person at the right time on the right channel when you have no idea who they are. Anonymous information, right? 55% of consumers, never going to give any data to marketers ever. So what happens there is, well, how do we do our jobs? Well, the only way you can do it is by worrying less about the 3,000 things that might sit in your database based on what they've done in the past or clicked on and worry more about what mood are they in? Mm -hmm. What mood were they in in the last 10 minutes based upon anonymous data and matching that to millions of people with the same values? You could read an Instagram photo. You could look at the emojis. You could do personality insights, tone, sentiment analysis. This is all the stuff that Watson does at its core. And it's basically the biggest output, I think, is trying to understand based upon anonymous behavior what's really going on, what's likely to happen next, and what should we do about it? John, anything? I, I think brands um, remain firmly in control, as you'd expect me to say. Um, and I think that the, they're just challenged. Their ability to understand the power of the, the consumer has power, and the consumer has a point of view and has a, a, is aware of that, um, and you need to be able to accommodate it. And I think if you've built a brand that's robust enough, then you've built a brand that can accommodate the, the, change, the, the changes that are coming all the time, and that's what we would call a future-proof brand. And I'd absolutely agree with what you were saying, Kerry. But I mean, the, the ability to react to things that are in the news in a way that is meaningful comes down purely to whether you are being authentic, whether you are practicing what you preach, whether you are, if you, if, if you want to take a cause on, then you better make sure that you live it all the way through the organization. And I think if you're doing that, then, then you will stand up and you will, will roll with the punches. Well, just, you know? John, just sticking with you, let's, we've, we've talked about, um, obviously, IBM and, and GSK. You've mentioned Disney and, and Nespresso. Any, any other brands you know, that you can pick up on that performed well um, that you know, we can hear about um, you know, from the well, index or, or you know, any, any particular lessons that we can learn from them as yeah, well? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, well, I, th I think the most interesting thing is to look maybe three years out. So one of the questions we ask is, um, we asked people uh, in the survey which brands they think will be, are moving ahead. Uh, and then we asked them which do we think will be moving ahead in three years' time. And what's interesting about moving ahead in three years' time, you know, you, you see a world where increasingly dominated by American and Chinese brands. Brands that are actually, you know, fundamentally built on the power of their, their, their huge home markets, but that come at the world from a very different perspective. Um, Chinese brands are coming at the world from a... Um, anticipation and wanting to be global. Uh, I think American brands tend to do it because they need to be. Uh, the values that are driving a lot of the Chinese brands are much more in tune, I would say, with where the world wants to go and where the world will potentially react to where it is today. Confucian values, values linked to harmony, values linked to long-term evolution, long-term improvement, consistency over a long period of time. Um, and I think that, the, that, that looking three years hence, that there's a really interesting battleground there. And in order to, if you're not American and you're not uh, Chinese, and if you happen to live in a country that's decided to uh, extract itself from its most powerful trading block, then you're going to have to do something special, something unbanal to stand out in that world. And I think that's a really big pressure now for anyone who wants to compete going forward in the longer term. With regard to other interesting things, I think always people want to hear which, which companies are falling. Um, and there are a bunch of, you know, companies that, you know, and, and in fairness, all of the brands we, in our survey are pretty successful brands. They're all in the global top 100 by market cap, right? And there, but there are some that are 
struggling with some short-term things. Um, you know, Louis Vuitton, has, LVMH rather, has a, has a challenge around the way it's perceived around its purpose. But, you know, there are some brands in there like Unilever, like Walmart, that are going to really struggle going forward in terms of how indispensable and how meaningful are they coming to people's lives when they become increasingly, you know, under com competition from new threats, new, new business models and all yeah. the rest of it. So that. Unilever, I, I found surprising because that's like the poster child for purpose, isn't it? Poster boy, poster, yeah, girl, and, and, poster and child, whatever. <laughs> poster person. Poster, poster person. person. Yeah, poster person um, I, th I think that, you know, in fairness to Unilever, I mean, they, they were obviously one of the first. Um, and they put it right at the center of the business plan under Paul Pullman. And obviously, things have changed there most recently. And I think they've gone back a little bit, potentially, to their model of employing from, employing from within and all the rest of it and trying to recover the, the, the essence of what Unilever stands for. And I think Unilever is one of those, you know, a bit like some, of the, some, some, some other companies. They are battling with maturity issues. They're ba battling to remain meaningful in a world where you know, banality is punished very quickly. And I think being, being able to make their purpose resonate again is a big challenge and be able to live that through the products they make. And of course, they make a lot of single-use plastic products and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of challenges there. And I, and I know, and I'm sure that, and you know, if you have to listen to the, the new guy in charge, that he's pretty aware of what's, what the issues are and is, is going to tackle it. So I would expect Unilever to come back fighting, absolutely. They're okay. just having a blip. I, th I think the theory as well, though, is you've kind of just hit on something there that talks about one of the biggest issues that we have. You mentioned um, Louis Vuitton as being one of the brands, maybe LVMH, that might be struggling a little bit to explain their purpose. And I guess that also begs the question about, do you really need to have a purpose? Like, how crucial is it? You know, it's a little bit like, uh, I was at a thing listening to David Mamet recently, the playwright that wrote Glengarry Glen Ross, and everyone was talking about, oh, you've got to have a purpose, you've got to mm. talk about. Mm. And he was like, no, I just need to entertain people for 75 minutes and that's it. Mm. I want to take them out of their life and do their thing. So when I look at um, LVMH, I mean, they've got, Louis Vuitton's got an amazing legacy, right? Mm. They've got a fantastic story. But you look at Virgil Abloh, you know, founder of Off-White, and you look at what he's doing at probably the top most desired brand in the world, when you look at his stuff now, more in demand, as you know, than anything else, the collaboration with Ikea. So when you look at, you know, a certain demographic of people on the street, who do you want more than anybody else to be LV, you know, or, you know, off-white? But yet that doesn't always reflect yeah. in the brand values of what it is that we're talking about. And you, you, we mentioned like three years out, you know, if we go back three years, in 2015, we would have never in a million years expected to be sat here today thinking that in two years' time, 50% of browsing behavior is going to happen without a screen. Like, voice is going to change everything. And if we don't make sense of that, we're all screwed as brand marketers. So that's where you've kind of got this dichotomy of marketing trying to keep up with what's actually going in on the street and sometimes trying to ask too much. Yeah, I mean, it. I think purpose... I mean, remember, purpose... Our view is purpose is only one part of the puzzle. And I think in the post-Simon Sinek world where purpose was kind of the answer. <laughs> like you just put that. your purpose on a wall and, and you <laughs> sit back and have a cigar admiring it. I think in this day and age, it, it's just the start. And I think the ability to activate that and the ability to deliver it locally, you know, the GSK point, to be able to deliver what you stand for globally, but in a way that resonates locally. Which is, is why the Future Brand has such a large emphasis on the experience. Absolutely. Right? As yeah. Well as the yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and some brands are a more connected experience than others. And it, and it really comes down, the ones that are growing faster are the ones that are just simply you know, practicing what they preach, standing up for what they, they say they stand for. And I, th and I think that it sounds almost trite in its simplicity, but it's extremely difficult to deliver. But having that as your, like you were saying earlier, it's really confusing, it's really difficult, you're constantly, you know, there's a real pressure on marketers to know what to do in situations and should I say this or should I say that? But if you've got a simple coder at your heart which says, 
is this in line with what we stand for? Are we doing this in a way that feels authentic and true to what we say we're all about? Then you kind of have a plan for going forward. And I think in this day and age where there's so much coming at you from so many different channels, having a simple, what the, an American politician would call your stump speech, having something to refer back to, to lean back on and, and come forward again is actually really important. Whether, you know, doing it consistently is obviously the battle these days, but not knowing what to do is, is, is no longer acceptable. Yeah. And just one thing, and I know we've gone round a lot on social and clearly, there's so much in that space, but also there's part of me that also thinks that maybe I'm just trying to be nostalgic and my kids are growing up about, actually, there's a real need for real human physical connection as well. And actually, don't let's lose that in the mix because um, maybe I just don't want to believe that oh, we're going to become a world where we only interact virtually. But actually, you know, when my son says, I said, you can see a friend on Saturday night. He said, no, he says, I'm going to talk. Um, so basically, he'd rather see his best friend virtually than physically, because if he's in the same room with him, they can't do the same gaming as if he's around the corner virtually. <laughs> like, oh. How old is he? 15. Um, but oh, I think that um, the, what I'm talking about the experience is that clearly getting it right in whatever social space, virtual, digital era is correct, is absolutely vital. But actually, let's not forget the need for humans to have physical human interaction and the, the power of that sort of, um, you, know, where the, you know, the growth and things like concerts now and festivals and all those mm -hmm. things. Actually, that piece now of um, that being part of a human throng and a human sort of living as well is actually really important to the experience. It's, it's why receptionists are so important in corporate, corporate yeah. Yeah. you know, and quite often that's yeah. outsourced to a third party who will run all the facilities areas. But yeah. the ability to, that's your first interaction with the brand for a lot of people, yeah. particularly if you're coming for your first graduate interview. I was um, down Oxford Street a couple of weeks ago with my 13-year-old yeah. daughter and went to Nike Town, which is a whole new experience. And it was sort of like four o'clock on a Thursday evening or something and clearly the party was happening yeah. and everyone was jumping and they had DJs there and the staff were jumping around and, and I just said, I said to my daughter, I think they recruit to type in this place and I'm not sure I'm quite right. But actually for that, all, it was fantastic. It was a nightclub on a four o'clock on a Thursday mm. and you just got that sense and obviously Apple do it really well, the stores, but that when you, I just think it's quite important as we come to an end here that when we talk about experience, it, it's it has to encompass that whole piece of, of humanity, or at least I'd like to think it does. <laughs> but I bet your son, who's playing Fortnite or whatever it is. He that is he, Fortnite. Right? <laughs> um, and he probably thinks he's super connected. And he's probably got yeah. some community of people, mm. and they all kind of, you know, they all love and support each other yeah. within that little world. But there was, I listened to Sam Harris's podcast yesterday, and he was interviewing um, Johan Harry who wrote Lost Connections, and it was all about depression, anxiety, and stuff. And he was making a case for how today we're actually the loneliest society that there has ever been and they cite research from just about 20 years ago where if you ask people like in a crisis stuff really goes wrong like stuff's bad whatever it is that's happened who do you go to who do you call on and it used to be somewhere up to around about five people and the research that's been done today it's not the average but the most common answer is zero mm. the most common answer given is i actually don't have anybody to go to, but yet, you know, you've got this Instagram-driven, mm. like, follow, I don't want to get into all the cliches, but you know what I mean? I do life. And, um, and I've got, you know, two-year-old girls, and the amount of time that they go outside and play, you look at what kids are doing today, it's less than the amount of people incarcerated in prisons, mm. right? For the average amount of time that kids go and play outside, it's just less than an hour. And inmates spend 70 minutes a day outside because they have to, by law. <laughs> But kids don't because they want to be inside and being connected. And, and it's like therein lies the challenge for brands to drive a real, like genuine deep-rooted experience. Yeah, well, let, let, let's, let's finish this off because I, 
I plan to do about 45, 50 minutes. I think we've done about an hour and 20 so far. Um, and I've only asked you seven questions, which is ridiculous. Um, let's, let's just go around the table. One last thought from each of you on what those CMO CEOs, um, if, if the, CMOs trust their, their, uh, the CEOs trust their CMOs, that is, um, and others involved in their, in their business purposes listening to this podcast need to be focusing on uh, to get things right in their organization. And uh, hey, you never know, they, they, they might... Go up those rankings in, in, in the index ne next time, uh, John. So let, let's start with you, John. Just one, one thought. Let's see if we can keep this to, to one sentence from each of you. I, I, know, think, that, I, I know that's a challenge. <laughs> I, think, I think simplicity. The, 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 I don't want to nick your thunder, but, uh, Jeremy, but if you're going to talk about storytelling, the ability for you know, professionals to simply tell a story to other professionals within organizations is one of the biggest barriers to getting stuff done. Because if the person who... Um, can't tell their boss and can't get their boss excited about it and he can't get his boss excited about it, it that thing's never going to happen and I think the ability to have a simple a simple you know this is what we're trying to do we st we are a brand that stands for this therefore everything we do should work like this this is therefore why I'm doing this is a simple thing that anyone can understand and keeping that level of simple communication is something that I think is really missing and I think the ability to do that would make a huge difference okay Kerry and just in case you say the same word, I'm going to get in the first. <laughs> so, so I love simplicity. My word would be authenticity. Mm -hmm. So if it's not authentic, don't even start. If it doesn't feel true to you as a person, as a leader, as a company, it's just not going to fly. Mm -hmm. So that would be my word. Jeremy, I'm, I'm going finish. to steal a line from Jerry Maguire, <laughs> the old classic. He said, people just want to be inspired. And I think if there's one thing that this conversation has done for me today, it's like, how do we go and inspire other people? to do what inspires them. And we shouldn't get as hung up on it about what's the value of that. You know, what's the ROI of that relationship? What's the ROI of your mum or your dog? It's like, people just want to be inspired. Yeah, fantastic. Um, let's finish this off, John. If listeners um, want to download a copy of the index or find out any further information. Yes, yeah, uh, freely, freely downloadable off our website. All we ask is that you uh, authentically leave your email address, <laughs> not... Uh, Mumbo jumble at gmail.com. But, uh, you know, actually, you know, genuinely speaking, though, no, it's the, the full report and previous reports are available for download. And, and that address is www.futurebrand.com. Tremendous. I'm sure there's loads more we could have uh, covered off in this show, um, but we've only got this room for a little bit longer, I think, Kerry, so we better, we better get out of here. Just want to thank you all again. Um, so my three guests today, Kerry O'Callaghan, Jeremy Waite and John Tipple. And of course, thank you, Kerry, for, for hosting us here at GSK. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. If you've got anything you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page or LinkedIn page um, or on the Twitter feed. And those are all linked from the top of the website at csweetpodcast.com, where you'll also find our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads for each episode via the likes of Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. And if you are on iTunes um, and you've enjoyed the show then please do give us a positive rating and review because that helps us up the business charts and means uh, more people can um, get to hear today's discussion just a reminder again of that url that john uh, gave out so if you want a copy of the future brand index simply go to www.futurebrand.com finally if you'd like to get in touch with this show you can do that via our contact form at csweekpodcast.com um, or you can reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>